You wake, your throat burns, you cough violently. The room was dimly lit. You rub your eyes, which are dry and painfully sore. The room looked dusty. A white fog swirls in the room. Cries echo from outside. Panic shouts. You cough again and again, trying to catch your breath. But with every inhale, it feels like intaking in fire. You pull yourself out of the bed. You see the white cloud coming from an open window. You stumble to it, desperately trying to close the window. You begin to feel worse, dizzy, unable to inhale. You have to get out. Tripping, bumping, slipping and stumbling, you make it to the street. The fog is dense, but you can make out shadowy people everywhere. Screaming, crying, collapsing and vomiting. You see taillights of a truck. You, along with others, climb into the back. You didn't care where you were going. Once it was far away from here, far from the burning white cloud. This was the Bhopal disaster, and this is the good, the bad, and the pure evil. In 1969, the UCIL, or Union Carbide India Limited, was built in Bhopal, India, to produce pesticides using metal isocyanide, or MIC as an intermediate. An MIC plant will be added to the UCIL site in 1979. Another company, Bayer, in the US would also use MIC in their chemical plant. But once the Bhopal plant was built, others, including Bayer, began to produce carbyl without MIC. Producing without MIC would cost a lot more. The UCIL process would also be different than others. They would first react phosgene with naphthol to form a chloroformat ester, which would then react with methylene. In the 80s, the one for pesticides would fall, but production continued, leading to excess MIC being stored at the Bhopal site. In 1976, two local trade unions would complain about pollution connected to the plant. Then in 1981, a worker accidentally got splashed with phosgene phosgene while doing his job on the pipes. Knowing the danger of the chemical, the man freaked out, removing his gas mask, inhaling the toxic chemical. The man sadly died three days later. After these incidents, journalist Raj Kumar Keswani started to look into the plant. He would report his findings to the local paper and would urge the people of Bhopal to wake up, to be aware they were living on the edge of an active volcano. January 1982, a phosgene leak happened, exposing 24 workers who were ordered not to wear protective gear. All those exposed were admitted to hospital. A month later, February 1982, an MIC leak affected 18 workers. Another incident happened in August 1982. A chemical engineer would come in contact with liquid MIC. The engineer would have burns of over 30% on his body from the contact. Another leak happened again in October 1982. Attempts were made to stop the leak. Two workers were se severely exposed to gases and a superior would receive chemical burns. In 1983 and 1984, more leaks would happen of MIC. Chlorine, monomethylene, phosgene, carbon tetrachloride or mixes of them. 
So at the facility it held 68,000 litres of MIC in three storage tanks, E610, E611 and E619. Safety regulations would state these tanks to be filled at a max of 50% or 30 tonnes, no more than that. Each tank was pressurised with nitrogen gas. This would allow liquid MIC to be pumped when needed and keep moisture and debris out of the tanks. Late October 1984, tank E610 couldn't contain its nitrogen gas pressure, which meant the liquid inside couldn't be pumped out. When it failed, tank E610 had 42 tonnes of liquid, more than the 30 recommended. The MIC production would stop at the facility and parts of the plant were shut down for maintenance. The plant's flare tower would also be shut down for repairs on a rotted pipe. With this flare tower down, production of Carbrayel wouldn't resume until November. Using MIC stored in the other two tanks, that, as the first one was still not working, they would try to store pressure in tank E610 on December 1st, but it failed. So 42 tonnes of MIC liquid still couldn't be pumped out. By December 1984, most of the plant's safety systems were malfunctioning. The valves and lines were all in poor condition. Many vent gas scrubbers and a steam boiler were all out of service, leading to the pipes not being cleaned. Late evening on December 2nd, water is thought to have gotten into the tank E610 by a side during attempts to unclog it. The tank still had the 42 tonnes of MIC inside it. With water now inside, a runaway exothermic reaction started to happen. This reaction was accelerated by contaminants, high temperature and other factors. The pressure in E610 was at 2 psi at 10.30 pm. Just half hour later it was at 10 psi. Reporting it to two senior employees, it was assumed the instruments to read psi was wrong and probably malfunctioning. At 11.30 pm workers were starting to feel unwell from the exposure to MIC gas. So a search for the leak began. At 11.45 pm a leak was found. For some reason they decided to deal with the leak after the 12.15 am tea break. Until then they were to search for any more leaks. The problem was discussed during the tea break and five minutes after the break at 12.40 am the tank E610 reached critical state at an alarming speed. Pressure and temps were off the scale in the tank. The temp was maxing out beyond the 25 degrees Celsius and the PSI pressure was at 40. The emergency relief valve on the tank blew open, cracking the concrete slab above it. The PSI was now at 55 and the atmospheric venting of toxic MIC gas is started, something that should have been prevented. Three safety devices should have kicked in to prevent atmospheric venting. All three malfunctioned. These three safety devices included a refrigeration system to cool the tank, but that was shut down in 1982, with its fern removed in June 1984. Then you have the flare tower. This was to burn MIC gas as it escaped, but it wasn't working. And finally, the vent gas scrubber, which was deactivated at the time, set to standby mode. So about 30 tonnes of MIC 
escaped from the tank in just an hour, which was at 40 tonnes within two hours. The gas, with the help from the wind, blew southeast over Bhopal. An employee sounded the alarm system at 12.50am as the gas was becoming too difficult to tolerate in the plant. Two siren alarms sounded, one inside the UCIL plant and one outside to alert the city and the people. The two sound siren system was made singular in 1982 to allow the outside alarm to be turned off while inside continued. On the night, that's exactly what happened. The outside alarm sounded briefly and then turned off per procedure to avoid alarming the public to small, unwarranted leaks. Workers inside were then evacuated. The police would receive a call that residents of Kola were fleeing after hearing the alarm about one o'clock in the morning. Police would call the factory from 1.25am till 2.10am for information about the alarm and why it had stopped. They were told at first that all was okay, but on the last call, told we don't know what has happened. The hospital in Himidia didn't fare better on information. They were told it was ammonia, not phosgene. And then they were told MIC instead of methyl cyanide. MIC the hospital never heard of and they had no antidote and received no more information about it. MIC gas would leak out at 2 a.m. 15 minutes later, the outside alarm went off again. Minutes later, a UCIL employee went into the police to give information about the leak and told them it was plugged. Most of the residents were aware of the MIC gas leak by exposure symptoms or by opening the door to check what was going on. They should have been told before the gas arrived so they could have evacuated or take shelter. The first effects would be coughing, sore eyes, feeling suffocated, burning respiratory tract, breathlessness, stomach pains and vomiting. People who woke with these symptoms fled. Those who ran inhaled more than those who drove. Those small in height, such as children, inhaled higher levels as the gas is twice as dense as air, so it fell and lingered close to the ground. By the morning, thousands had sadly died. The main cause of death at the first was choking, refluxogenic circulatory collapse and pulmonary oedema. Autopsies would show changes in lungs and cerebral oedema, tuberculosis of the kidneys, fatty degeneration of the liver and necrosis enteritis. Those who lived were exposed to cancers, blindness, loss of livelihoods and financial strain. Other gases were thought to be in the gas cloud, like chloroform, hydrogen, hydrogen chloride, methylene, diamethylene, trimethylene, and carbon dioxide, which were either present in the tank or produced when MIC, chloroform, and water mixed in the tank. Gas cloud would be dense, denser than air, so it would stay close to the ground and spread south easily to nearby communities. The chemical reactions may have produced liquid or solid aerosol. Lab investigations by CSIR and UCC scientists failed to show presence of hydrogen cyanide. Straight after the plant closed to outsiders, including investigators, data would fail to make it to the public, which added to all the confusion. 
The investigation was done by CSIR, or Council of Scientific and Industrial Research. Now the UCC chairman and CEO Warren Anderson and a technical team would arrive in India. While Anderson arrived, he was straight away put under house arrest and told by the Indian government to leave within 24 hours. Union Carbide would organise a team of international medical experts to work with the local Bhopal medical community and the UCC technical team began looking for the cause of the gas leak. The health system became overloaded. In the worst affected places, nearly 70% of doctors were underqualified. Thousands came and the medical staff were not prepared. The doctors weren't aware how to properly treat MIC gas inhalation. Funerals and cremations were done in large groups. Within days, the trees became barren, animals became bloated and died. 170,000 people were treated. 2,000 buffaloes, goats and other animals were collected and buried. Supplies and food became scarce and fishing was prohibited. December 16th, tanks 611 and 619 were emptied by reactivating the plant. Despite continued safety precautions, a second mass evacuation happened. The Bhopal Gas Leak Disaster Act was passed, giving the government rights to represent all victims, whether Indian or not. Complaints would begin about little information or misinformation. Formal statements would come that air, water, vegetation and food were all safe, but fish was to be avoided. 200,000 children were exposed to the gases. Weeks after, the state government would establish hospitals, clinics and mobile units in the affected areas to treat these victims. Legal proceedings involving UCC, US and Indian governments along with local Bhopal authorities and the victims started immediately. The first lawsuit was generated in the US federal court system. April 17, 1985, Federal District Court suggested that fundamentally human decency required Union Carbide to provide 5 to $10 million to help the injured and for the money to be quickly distributed through the International Red Cross. Two days later, UCC offered $5 million. The Indian government turned this offer down. In March 1986, UCC proposed a settlement of $350 million. This was also turned down. The government of India claimed it should be $3.3 billion. Eventually, February 1989, an out-of-court settlement was reached. Union Carbide agreed $470 million for damages caused in the Bhopal disaster. Throughout 1990, the Indian Supreme Court heard appeals against the settlement. In October 1991, Supreme Court upheld the $470 million, dismissing any outstanding petitions that challenged the original decision. So in 1991, the local Bhopal authorities charged Anderson, who had retired in 1986. He was charged with manslaughter. He fled and was declared a fugitive in February 1992, as he failed to make appearance of a court hearing. Orders were passed to extradite. The US Supreme Court refused to hear appeals in October 1993, meaning victims couldn't seek damages in a US court. 
2004, Indian Supreme Court ordered the Indian government to release any remaining funds to victims. June 2010, seven former employees of the UCIL were convicted of causing death by negligence. They were each sentenced to two years and fined $2,500. All were released on bail shortly after the verdict. Some data about health effects still aren't available. It's believed 520,000 people were affected, 200,000 were under 15, and 3,000 were pregnant women. In 1991, 2,259 was a death toll. 3,928 deaths have been officially certified. In 2006, 558,125 were recorded injured by the leak. 38,478 partially injured and 3,900 severely disabled. Long-term effects are chronic conjunctivitis, scars on the cornea, obstruction and or restrictive disease, pulmonary fibrosis, impaired memory, numbness, PTSD, neonatal death and failure to grow. There are two main lines of argument involving the disaster. Corporate negligence argues the disaster was caused by under-maintained decaying facilities, no interest in safety and under-trained workers. Worker sabotage was the other one. This would be held by Union Carbide. This argues it wasn't possible for water to get into the tank without a person doing so. Allegedly, testimony and analysis would lead to a conclusion that a rogue employee hooked a water hose directly to a valve on the side of the tank. The theories would differ how water would get in. At the time, cleaning was being done on a clogged pipe just 400 feet from the tank. Those cleaning this pipe claimed they weren't told to isolate the tank with a pipe slip blind plate. Operators put down to pour valves and that water just simply leaked in. Either way, the water entry route couldn't be reproduced despite many efforts. Chemicals abandoned at the plant continue to leak and pollute the groundwater. It's disputed if this causes a health hazard or not. Contamination at the site and surrounding area isn't just caused by the gas leak. It would be a dumping ground for hazardous chemicals. By 1982, water wells around the area were abandoned. UCC lab tests in 1989 revealed the soil and water samples near the factory show toxic to fish. 21 areas inside the plant were highly polluted. In 1991, authorities declared 100 water wells were hazardous to drink. In 1999, Greenpeace did their own test, showing contamination with a range of toxic, heavy metals and chemical compounds. 2004, BBC Radio 5 reported the site is contaminated with toxic chemicals including benzene, hexachloride and mercury held in open containers or loose on the ground. A drinking water sample from a well had contaminated levels 500 times above the max recommended by the WHO. In 2010, a British photojournalist went to the abandoned factory to investigate leaking toxins. He was hospitalised for a week in Bhopal after being exposed to the chemicals. He was treated with oxygen, painkillers and anti-inflammatories due to a severe respiratory reaction to the toxic in the factory. 
The tragedy of Bhopal continues to be a warning sign at once ignored. It's a warning that these industries in underdeveloped countries is fraught with human, environmental and economic perils. Although moves are being done, far more remains to be done for public health to show that lessons have been learned and that the thousands who died in Bhopal won't happen again. For listening, next time I'll be talking about Issy Sagawa or the Kobe Cannibal, a Japanese murderer and cannibal known for killing Renee Hartfelt in Paris 1981. Until then, this was the good, the bad and the pure evil.